Good morning, guys. I just want to say how excited I am to get to be with you guys today. I am just so blessed to get to be on a staff at a church like Awakening, and I want to tell you why. Because I have three millennials in my family. I am a mother of three millennials, 30, 26, and 19. I am a grandmother, and I love that we exist to awaken this generation to new life in Christ. I wish that something like this existed when I was 19 years old. Because when I was 19, I was a very different person than the person you see before you today. But I'll start here. I was in a relationship with an amazing guy, and we'll call him Mike because, well, that was his name. And so, um, <laughs> and um, he loved me so well, it was so sweet, so kind. We worked together, and so he was the kind of guy who would bring me little treats and write me cards and, and even have dozens of roses delivered to work. And I was like, wow, this is really awesome. I'd leave kind of like the princess waving, going, look at my flowers. And I just, I loved it. And we went to school together. We went to the same community college, and it was there that the trouble started. You see, um, true confessions today, kind of like Psalm 51, I was not such a nice person because what happened was is a couple of jocks on campus started teasing me about dating this guy who was kind of a geek and wasn't really strong in stature. He was kind of a lanky little guy, and, and I let that get to me. I, I let what they said matter to me more than the love of this person who who like worshiped the ground I walked on, and it was really kind of sad that it mattered to me what they thought, but it did. And so the jocks were teasing me as I went across campus, hey sister, what you doing with that guy? He's not, yeah, he's not up to your speed. And I took that in, and I broke up with him. The worst thing was I broke up with him three weeks before Christmas. Yeah, just take that in for a second. And yeah, so he was super thoughtful, he had already bought my gift. It's not like these days where you can get Prime and it shows up 48 hours later. <laughs> not like that. He actually had to plan. And so three weeks, I break up with him three weeks before Christmas, but he had already bought my gift. And so I'm dating this guy, Gino, now the jock dude. And Michael shows up at my apartment and Gino's there sitting on the sofa. And Michael gives me my gift as the sweet person that he was. And I could see the tears in his eyes as he left my house as I thanked him for a very thoughtful gift. And then, stupid me, Gino and I moved in together into that apartment. And I told myself things like, well, it's a two-bedroom. Of course, we're going to sleep in separate rooms. You know, the good Christian girl rationalizing all this craziness. And yeah, that's not how it worked out. And I wonder, have you ever lost focus? Have you ever gone down a path that ended you up in a place you never imagined? I never thought I could hurt such a sweet person like that. And I'm pretty sure some of you guys are thinking, oh my gosh, what kind of person is she? But that's not the end of the story. And so today we're going to look at a really good man who lost focus and went down a path that landed him in a place he never imagined he would be. And Psalm 51 is the result of those actions, of what happens when we make devastating choices and where they land us. So the backstory here, some of you guys know David. He was called a man after God's own heart. We kind of hear that one thrown around a lot. But 
David was a really good man. He trusted God. He had faith in God. And he understood the kind of God that would love him no matter what. But here's what David did in 2 Samuel chapter 11 that led to penning Psalm 51. See, 2 Samuel 11 tells us that David should have been at war, like all kings during the spring. But he decided to stay at home. And he got bored one evening, hanging around his palace, and decided to go up and walk around and stand on the top of his, his palace and look at all that the light touched, all that was his kingdom, and he surveyed it. And as he was doing that, he looked down, and he saw a woman bathing on her rooftop. And he looked, and he focused on her, and he wondered, who is that? And so he asked the person with him, who is that girl? And the guy kind of scratching his head was like, well, that's the daughter of Iliam and the wife of Uriah. And these names should have meant something to David because they were, number one, Iliam was the father of Bathsheba, but he was also a man who had been in the trenches with David. He had fought alongside him in battle. And I don't know about you, but one of my children is a Marine, and he tells me, you never forget the men who have been in the trenches with you. And then there's Uriah, who is part of David's 30 amazing, mighty men, which means he was a trusted friend and a loyal confidant. Names he should have recognized. Now, he may not have seen Bathsheba for a while, but he noticed her beauty. He may not have seen her since she was a kid. Who knows? But he focused on her beauty. I don't know why, but maybe, just maybe it was because he had seen so much horrific battle that he just wanted something beautiful. Not making excuses for him, but I do say this, that there are times when we want to fulfill needs that we have that are legitimate, but in very illegitimate ways. So David sends one of his soldiers to get her. In the NIV, the word there is get. It says in 2 Samuel 11, he sent the man to get her. But if you look a little deeper under that word in the Hebrew, it means to take, it means to seize, to grasp. And so he sent a soldier to get a girl who was bathing on a rooftop. Do you think she could say no to the king? I don't. But it was this good man, a man that God had chosen to anoint the next king, a man who fought against Goliath because he knew the power of God was on his side. That man did this. And I tell you that because sometimes we think, well, I'm doing all right. Life's not so bad. I, I can't possibly do anything that bad. But here's a good man who fell, which is, lets us know no one is immune to falling. Whether you come in these doors every week or this is your first day here, you know we sin. We break our own laws that we have for ourselves. And so here's what David did. He saw a woman, he focused on her, and he decided, I have to have her. We don't maybe do that, but we have legitimate needs that we meet in illegitimate ways. Think about it like this. Have you ever wanted love so badly that you're obsessively dating, checking and swiping and figuring out who you like and who you don't like and you're just not content being on your own? Or how about wanting attention so badly that you'll flirt with any guy or girl who gives you any attention? And I don't know about you, but I love praise, and 
Sometimes it looks like making myself invaluable, hoping that someone would see me as indispensable, and all the while I'm approaching burnout. There's nothing wrong with loving, wanting love or attention or beauty or words of affirmation, but what is wrong is the lengths that we are willing to go to get those needs met. And David, the man who wrote 73 of the 150 Psalms in the Hebrew Scriptures, David who said that the Lord is my shepherd, there is nothing I need, but he convinced himself he needed Bathsheba. And when he was approached about his sin by Nathan, he had a realization. And when we realize that we have sinned, we awaken to the wrong that we have done, and we should approach a God of love. Here's what David did. In verse 1 of Psalm 51, he says, Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to your great compassion. Blot out my transgressions. I don't know about you, but this is not how I approach God when I blow it. Well, maybe here's what I do. As I shame and belittle myself just enough to make me believe that God might have mercy on me. But David starts with the goodness of God. He says, be gracious to me. Now, you might hear that as, ugh, this God who is scary and aloof and angry, and he's going, please, God, remember how good you are. Be gracious to me. But no, what David is remembering is he's reminding himself that this is the kind of God I serve, one that I could back the truck up of all my junk and dump it in his presence and ask him to destroy it, stench and all, wipe it out. That's what he's saying when he says, blot out my transgressions. Make it as if it never happened. That's what he's asking. God, please take it away. And he says, please blot out my transgressions. I know because of the loving God that you are, I can bring this to you. Because running away doesn't help. Adam and Eve tried that, and we're all part of that story, so we know how good running away works. It doesn't. And David ran into the presence of this loving God. And so let's talk about what David knew so well about the love of God. In Hebrew, this word is hesed. And you'll see on the screen a string of words that comes up here. The consistent, ever-faithful, relentless, constantly pursuing, lavish, extravagant, unrestrained, furious love of our Father God. Try saying that three times fast. <laughs> but I want you to look at it. Consistent, ever-faithful, relentless, constantly pursuing, lavish, extravagant, unrestrained, we just sang about it, furious love of God. This is what David knew, that this kind of loving kindness was in the presence of God. This was who he was coming into the presence of. This is why he could approach God's throne so boldly, expecting grace. Because David, when he realized that he had sinned, he didn't run away. He came to God, junk and all, because he knew that God was going to love him faithfully, extravagantly, and with a constant pursuing kind of love. You and I, too, 
we can approach God like this. Do you believe that? I have a hard time with it sometimes, and that's why I think God allowed the Psalms to be penned so that we would see what he's willing to do. Let's look at verse 2. David's request to God, he says, Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. Before we go on, I I just want to back up a little bit and look at the words that David uses to talk about what he's done. He uses the word in verse 1, transgression. And in verse 2, the words iniquity and sin. Transgression is flat-out rebellion, primarily against the laws of God, which basically says, you know, I don't got room for those Ten Commandments. I want to do things my own way. I don't feel like, "Ah, you know what, keep that stuff about coveting and adultery and murder. I, I know, not that I really want to do those things, but I just, I would like to just be the ruler of my own life. I think I got this. That's what rebellion is, because God created us in his image, and he knows what's best for us. But we think we do. I know I do sometimes, and it puts me in this place. And David certainly broke some commandments. And then there's iniquity, a sin that is particularly evil, since it strongly conveys the idea of twisting and perverting. So let's get back to David for just a second. David's actions would certainly fit into this category. Just think about it. Seizing a woman, sleeping with her, and then sending her back home. I don't know if Bathsheba had never gotten pregnant, if we would have ever heard about her again. Because the only words we hear from her in 2 Samuel 11 are when she sends word to David that she was pregnant. And so I think that's pretty perverted. And then, when he gets the word that she's pregnant, he tries to cover it up by giving Bathsheba's husband shore leave that maybe he'd go sleep with her and then they could just you know, figure out the dates and maybe it would all work out. And That didn't work. But that was a little twisted. And then, when that didn't work, he said, as the king, with an edict, put him on the front line and let him die. That's pretty evil. And that's what David was confessing when he says, forgive me of my iniquity. And then if you think to yourself, well, I'm not in any of those categories, he chooses the word sin, which is the basic, you know, kind of overarching definition of the general instances of committing sin. We've heard this definition, if you've been in church at all, missing the mark. What does that even mean? Well, missing the mark, the goal is God's glory. And so anything that does not put God on display in your life and show what he's really like, that's sin. And then David goes on to say, in verse 4, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. And I ask myself, okay, wait a second, only against God, but Uriah's dead and Bathsheba's pregnant because you violated her. And wait, her family that you knew, how is this possibly only against God? And as I was reading through this book at school, I'm I'm in seminary, by the way, if any of you guys didn't know that, um, 
I had to read this book this last term, which I thought was really awesome, we preparing for this message, and this book called Christ Formed in You, but written by Brian Hedges, he explained this, and it says, they were sins against God, violations of his law, infractions of his will, assaults on those who bore his image, and therefore on God himself. We each uniquely bear the image of God, and therefore, a sin against you is a sin against God. David is admitting that he had given in to his fallen nature instead of living for the glory of God. And he's confessing his wrong and doing that he knows he deserves judgment and that God could hold him to the letter of the law. So he chooses to confess, to agree with God when he was confronted when he came to that realization and he awoken and he approached God, then he confessed, as you've been seeing here. And confession is agreement with God about what you've done, calling sin, sin. But we have a hard time with confessing because no one wants to be under a cloud of condemnation. And so I want to pull apart these words, condemnation and conviction, for just a couple minutes. So Condemnation and conviction both have guilt at the root of them, but there's a healthy kind of guilt that drives us to confess, to own up to the things that we've done. But condemnation is this vague sort of overarching feeling that I am what I did, that your sin is who you are, that you're worthless and you can't possibly get out from underneath this ever. This is you. That's what condemnation says. Conviction, on the other hand, that comes from the Spirit of God or from your conscience says this, this specific thing, this is what you did. That's something that we can take ownership for, not just this overarching cloud of ugh that we think we are, but something specific I can take and I can say, okay, this is what I did, but that doesn't define my worth. It's not who I am. So you can sit with condemnation, but that's not helpful. Conviction is, and even the Bible in 2 Corinthians 7.10 makes this distinction between worldly sorrow and godly sorrow. With worldly sorrow, you feel horrible. You feel worthless. With godly sorrow, even that sounds a little weird, but here's what godly sorrow produces. You agree with God about that it's wrong, but then God has already settled the truth about your worth in, his death, in the death and resurrection of his son. It's done. You are worth the life of his son. So that's settled. Conviction is a good thing because that kind of sorrow leads to repentance. And that's where we go next. Repentance begins with confrontation and ends with a choice. When it's time to repent, we are confronted by our sin, and then we make a choice about what we're going to do, how we are going to respond. When David was confronted by Nathan, he cries out to a loving God for cleansing from the filth of his sin, and he says this, Cleanse me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Now, hyssop 
you probably have read this. If you have, you skipped right over this verse and kept moving. Because what is that? Well, hyssop is a plant that has medicinal qualities, and it was used for purification for lepers, people with a serious skin disease that made them defiled and unfit for corporate activity or worship. And this was a big deal in, in the Hebrew culture. If you were unclean, you had to go outside the camp and be by yourself for a week at a time and purify yourself. But lepers were never allowed in unless they had gone through a purification ritual and then they had been clean for so long and then they could be allowed back into worship. And so what David is saying is, I'm owning the gravity of what I did. I'm no better than a leper. I need a soul cleansing. I am full of spots and I need to be clean. And God, you can do that. He was confronted and he made a choice. And I want to know, I know about me. I want you to ask yourself, how do you respond when you're confronted with your sin? Sometimes it's through a sermon. Sometimes it's through your personal Bible study. Other times it's through a friend who's willing to tell you because they care about your soul. Do you minimize and go, ah, it's no big deal? Do you rationalize, blame it on the alcohol or shifting blame to someone else for how you responded? Do you justify telling yourself, other people have done way worse than this? The appropriate response when we're confronted is repentance. The process of repentance starts out with acknowledging the pain that's been caused, taking ownership, and making a decision to turn around and do life differently going forward. The repentance aspect is turning around and choosing, making a choice to do life differently from this point forward. Are you going to be perfect? No. But you can choose a new path. Shift your focus and choose a new path. Don't keep blame shifting or minimizing. Let yourself not, no longer make excuses when you're confronted. These are the actions that restore relationship. When we take ownership, when we say, I'm going to do better next time, we can restore relationship this way. And we get to see this in the next few verses in this psalm. Let's look at verse 10, where David says, Create in me a clean heart, a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Renew means to make like new, to restore to original perfection. David is asking, God, make me like that man that you saw when you chose me over Saul. Make me like that man who was a man after your own heart. Create that in me. So David realized, this is not anything I can do myself. I do play a part. We play a part when we mess up. But we have to remember that God is the one who starts this process. Complete restoration is possible no matter what you've done. I know it may feel like I've, been, I've gone too far. God cannot find me where I am. I've covered myself in all kinds of gunk and junk, and he doesn't want me anymore. But can I just tell you, no matter what you've done, complete restoration is possible. God is the only one who can create a clean heart in you, but your part is confession and repentance. No amount of penance will do. 
You cannot make yourself clean. You can accept the love of a relentless, faithful God who promises to forgive and then depend on him to change your heart. David goes on to say in verse 16, you delight in sacrifice, you do not delight in sacrifice. (laughs) Or I would give it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. What is David saying? You don't delight in sacrifices? Well, I can tell you there are a bunch of priests in the Old Testament that are like, well, then why are we covered in blood all day? Because what what David was saying was, I can't attempt to placate God. I can't do all these really cool deeds over here and not deal with the sin in my heart. I can't staple good fruit on me. I can't act like everything's okay and hide what's really going on in my heart because God wants my heart. He doesn't want my good deeds. That's part of what repentance is about, is choosing to do things differently, but that is not going to change the state of my heart. What is, is getting real about what you've done and bringing that to a loving God who wants to clean you up. And then David shows in verse 17 of this psalm what sacrifice God does want. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart you will not despise. This is what God wants. He wants our heart. A heart that gets serious about what we did and bringing that in earnest to God for forgiveness. What is forgiveness? It's the removal of a debt. We know this feeling. You can get into a fight with your spouse. You can yell at your kids. You can hang up the phone on somebody who calls in at work and you're like, yeah, I'm just done. We know that feeling of separation. We know when we have taken something from someone and there's a debt that's owed. Here's the reality. You can't shake it. I'm sorry won't fix it. But that person can look at you and say, The pain is real. I'm sorry I won't fix it, but I choose to let it go. That's forgiveness. The debt has been paid. You no longer owe me. And that is what forgiveness is. That's what God is offering. Forgiveness does restore relationship, but it does not relieve consequences. So I told you in the beginning that I moved in with my boyfriend and after Christmas and how I broke poor Michael's heart. What I didn't tell you is that a year later on Christmas Eve, I was all alone in that apartment because consequences are painful. I don't get to hurt people and I don't get to violate God's law and not have consequences. It cost me $1,500. Yes, I still remember the total because it was a lot of money for a 19-year-old who lived on her own because Gino left with his jock buddies and some new girl, and I don't know if he was dating her already, but I can tell you I knew her reputation, so I didn't doubt it. But all that to say this, 
that even though God forgives, there are consequences. And in David's life, this was true. If you look at 2 Samuel and you continue through the book, you will see some horrific things happen in David's life and in his family. The child that was conceived between him and Bathsheba died after only seven days. There was then incest between his daughter and another of his sons, which ended horribly in the murder of that son. And then multiple attempts at a hostile takeover of David's throne by his another son. David didn't rest for the rest of his life. There were consequences, and yet he still knew that God loved him, that those were the consequences for his sin that had nothing to do with God's love for him. God was still an ever-faithful, relentless, loving, chase-after-him kind of God. This is proof that the wages of sin is death, death to reputation, to intimacy, to relationships, to peace of mind, to joy. For us, on this side of the cross, our ultimate consequences have already been paid for in Christ. But there are still earthly consequences. And yet, failure is not the end of the story. Our past does not eclipse the love and forgiveness and the restoration that God offers. God is for you. He sent his son for you. He wrapped himself in flesh, born of a woman, and died on a cross for you, for me, for all of us, because he loves us that much. And for David, his failure was not the end of his story. In the New Testament, in Acts 13, 22, when David is being remembered, these are the words that are said. A man after God's own heart. You heard everything I just told you about David. How is that possible? Because David didn't try to placate God with good behavior and good deeds. Instead, he fessed up, realizing that sin is not some trivial thing. He took it seriously, repenting and choosing to do life differently from that moment forward, no matter what. Was it going to be easy? No. He still had desires. He still had things that he would want, and he might try to meet them in illegitimate ways, but he decided to do life differently. And our sins are not the final word on who we are either. I'm sitting here today as proof that God can restore a life. God can take a girl who, that was just the top of the iceberg of things that I've done in my life. Those are things I could share in mixed company and knowing that my daughter will be here in second service. So those are things that I could share. But I will tell you that our sins are not the final word on who we are either. That is only true, though, if we, like David, focus on God's character, on that relentless, ever-faithful, constantly pursuing extravagant love of God. If you are not in relationship with this God, I beg you, 
get to know him. He put his love on display in Jesus. And let me tell you something, I get it. I've been in church world almost 40 years. And I know that people present God in a way as a judgmental, angry, aloof, distant God. But I'm asking you, I'm begging you, fight through that portrayal of God and get to know the one of love. That's the real portrayal of God. What you were told when you were a kid, maybe that wrathful God, that's not all. He loves and he wants to get to know you. Wrath is against sin and sin alone and against evil, not against you. He died in your place. Trade with him your sin for his righteousness. For those of us who have trusted God at some point, David is proof that anyone can fall and no one is exempt and forgiveness is possible. He promises that if you confess, he is faithful and just to forgive you and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. So I want to talk to three groups of people right now. I want to talk to the good guy, the good girl, the goody two-shoes that I got called that a lot, which is why I think I kind of ran out the other side <laughs> because I didn't want to just be that. I didn't want to be that person that everybody looked at and said, oh, well, she's kind of, she's good enough. And so I began to tell myself that white lies are okay. Who's it hurting? But I want us to remember that any part of our life that does not bring glory to God misses the mark. When we sin, when it's brought to our attention, don't make excuses. Take care of it while it's small. It's way easier. Agree with God and turn around and put on Christ's righteousness. God wants to shine through you to a world that's hurting and needs to know the good news. People are watching your life, and they want to know what God does with a life. To the victim, there are certainly some in this room that when I started talking about Bathsheba being taken and seized and grasped, you may have checked out. I want to ask you really quickly, check back in for a second. There's something I want to tell you. Because I get it. I've been there more times than I care to say and by people who said they loved me. And I hurt with you. God hurts with you. Remember that what is done to his image is done to him, and he takes it seriously. And I want you to know that if you would have the courage to give God your pain and your anger and your bitterness and your zero desire to forgive, that he wants to restore your joy and to make you whole, and yeah, that's a process, let me tell you. But he's faithful to complete it. And to the prodigal, the one who deliberately chooses to do life on your own and causing pain and wreaking havoc in your own life and people around you, I want to say to you, you can be clean. You just have to come clean. 
You have to agree with God about the gravity of the things that you've done, just like the rest of us. Be like David. Run toward God. Complete restoration is possible. I don't care what you've done. David violated a woman. Could I just say he raped her, took her from her own house, and then returned her like she was just some other thing to do. He murdered her husband to get away with it. I don't know what you've done, but God forgave him. He approached God knowing that he loved him that much. And God loves all of us that much. That's why it's called good news. God has already forgiven you, forgiven me. And we have to learn to forgive ourselves. All sin misses the mark because none of it brings glory to God. We all have to trust in his goodness that he will forgive and bring joy and give us a new start and a new heart and the Holy Spirit to guide us. So, if you've ever lost focus and gone down a path and ended up where you never imagined, I just want to say to you today, be like David in this part. Focus, run toward God, toward his never-ending love. It will put you on a path toward restoration where you can experience life far beyond what you could ever ask or imagine. Will you pray with me? Jesus, thank you so much for your sacrifice for your goodness, for your love, for your mercy. Thank you that we can run toward you with all our junk and pour it out at your feet and you will wipe it away. You will blot it out and you will clean us up and you will love us from here to the end of time. I pray for the hearts of people here. I pray that you would help them to hear it and to see you for the loving and gracious God that you are. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.